Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 210, The Battle of Ashdown, also known as, Are You There, God? It's me, Athelred. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Lisa, James, and Heather for signing up already. God, in his goodness and justice, so much offended by our sins, had thus worn down the lands and kingdoms of the Christians. That's a quote from Prudentius of Troyes, and he was struggling to explain why the Franks seemed to almost always meet abysmal failure whenever they fought against the Scandinavians. And while that quote does come from across the channel, and it was written years before the disaster at the Battle of Reading, it does give us one of the lenses that the Christians of Western Europe were using to view these events. It's surprising how many writers from this period, when looking at these events, would look to the Bible for an explanation, and see things in terms of divine retribution or divine intervention. And that biblical perspective is something I want you to keep in mind when you hear the story that I'm going to tell you today. Because if you look at it from a modern perspective, the following events seem a little strange. But human interpretations of the world around them have changed throughout history. And that is something that we're going to discuss in a future Shop Talk episode on the members feed, because it is fairly common to naturalize your own culture and just assume that the way society currently views things is timeless and common sense. But it isn't. For example, right now in America, we currently have a hyper-individualistic perspective, and it's so far-reaching that purchasing a double Big Gulp from 7-Eleven is seen as an unassailable expression of freedom. And in fact, for some people, the threat of losing access to a soda cup that holds a volume of liquid that's twice the size of an average human stomach, well, for them, it's tantamount to tyranny. And that's an intense way to apply a belief system when you really start to break it down. But archaeologists a thousand years from now could be unearthing New York paper op-eds who are tying authoritarian political regimes to the attempt to regulate the 7-Eleven double big gulp. And regardless of whether or not you agree with it, you likely at least understand it. But chances are, those archaeologists are going to be confused as fuck. Common sense is relative to your time and place in history. Anyway, so members will have that to look forward to in a future episode. But moving away from the dangers of type 2 diabetes, let me return us to the main point. That people viewed things very differently in the 9th century. And not just in relationship to duty, expectations, and virtue, but also in terms of cause and effect. They didn't see the causal relationships the way we see them today. At least, not when it came to semi-uncontrollable events. If they lost to a Scandinavian army, not everyone would have immediately thought about improving their battle tactics. With all that in mind, let's return to Berkshire in January of 871. The Anglo-Saxons have had a rough year, and it's only January. Based upon the reports of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, Reading was lost right after Christmas in 870, 
And then we had New Year's and Elderman Athelwolf defeated a detachment of Danes. And that was good. But then, four days later, on January 4th, those same Danes defeated the full combined strength of the West Saxon Firds and sent the forces, along with the king and the prince, fleeing across the river Lauden, and then farther east, into the Berkshire Downs, possibly as far as Windsor. Behind them lay their equipment, their lords, their neighbors, their friends, and their family members. And who knows what the Danes were doing with their bodies. There were probably all sorts of frightful rumors spreading about how the pagans desecrated bodies. But at the very least, they could be sure that their compatriots were being denied a Christian burial. And for the Anglo-Saxon mind, that meant that their souls might be damned. They had lost so much more than just the royal ton of Reading. I can imagine that many of them felt that they would have been better off had they never marched there in the first place. And the worst part was that they thought they were winning. Elderman Athelwolf had won at Engel Field, and when the full army fought at Reading, it looked like they were winning there too. But it was all just a trick. So think about what they had just learned. Even when their most powerful generals are on the field, and even when the battle seems to be turning in favor of Wessex, they still could lose catastrophically. And now the Anglo-Saxons were left with King Athelred and Prince Alfred, who, despite being royalty and having been raised in court, had never won a single battle. Their military experience consisted solely of defeats and bribery. The mood in Windsor must have been sour, to say the least. Meanwhile, in Reading, King Halfdan, King Baxek, and all of their men were probably celebrating. These peasants were soft. They might have been good at plowing a field, but they weren't built for fighting. To them, England was a land of thralls, just waiting to be claimed. At Snottingham, these Anglo-Saxons had paid a ransom just to avoid having to lift a shield. And at Reading, they'd shown that they would run as soon as the real fighting began. Even their leaders fled the field. So for the Danes, this was time to solidify their victory and claim the kingdom of Wessex. Besides, while Reading was a royal ton, so it probably did have some supplies, there were a lot of Scandinavians who were camped there, not to mention their horses. And that meant that they needed a significant amount of food, fodder, drink, and everything else you could imagine. Given the fact that they had already sent a detachment to acquire supplies from Engel Field, most scholars assumed that the need for supplies was still a primary concern for the Scandinavians at Reading. It could also explain why Halfdan and Bagsek arranged a fight and a trap outside of the walls of Reading, rather than settling down for a siege like they had done at Snottingham. It was the dead of winter, after all. So, taking some time to reorganize and likely bandage their wounded and loot the fallen West Saxons, the great army of the north mobilized its forces and headed out in search of the fleeing West Saxon leadership. Why leave a bleeding enemy time to heal? This was the perfect chance to end the fight once and for all. And the Danish kings weren't fools after all this time they'd spent on the campaign. 
So, even though the mood of the army would have been high, they would have sent scouts out ahead. After all, they couldn't let the mistakes of Engel Field happen again. Now, the great army had seen a hell of a lot in the last fortnight. They'd taken a wealthy town, they'd suffered defeat at Engel Field, only to come back and devastate the army of Wessex at Reading. And now, now they were moving to make the killing blow. When this all began, Halfdan and Baxek's winter raid must have seemed risky. And Northmen generally didn't like risky. They liked easy plunder. So convincing people to come might have been difficult. But Halfdan and Baxek were right. These southerners were weak. And now the men of the great army were one fight away from receiving gifts of treasure or maybe even West Saxon lands of their own. This was a great year. On the other side of this, Asser tells us of how grief and shame was endemic among the West Saxon army. Now, grief and shame would spell trouble if you were trying to lead troops today. But this was a different time and a different culture. Asser speaks specifically about how that grief and shame energized the West Saxons. Actually, the word he used was aroused, but that also carries different connotations today. But you have to look at this from the 9th century West Saxon point of view. You have to look at it through their eyes. Losing all those friends in the fields outside of Reading. Losing all of that equipment, not to mention the ton itself. Losing all that personal status and honor. Well, it raised a bloodlust among the West Saxons. They didn't want to quit and go home. They wanted another shot at the title. And besides, if they went home now, Wessex was all but lost. East Anglia fell after a similar defeat, as did Northumbria. Standing down would result in a Scandinavian takeover. So the word was sent out. The West Saxon army was to regroup. Messengers very likely were sent, and I'm sure they were told to remind any able-bodied West Saxon. Well, let's be honest, they were probably talking to the lords who held dominion over the able-bodied West Saxons. But they were probably told that if Reading couldn't be retaken, the kingdom would be lost. Reading was central. And from there, the Scandinavians could strike virtually anywhere. Nowhere would be safe so long as these pagans held the royal ton of Reading. And the reason why I'm reasonably sure that they were telling them this is because it was true. And it seems that the call was answered. A lot of people came. Now, many of them were little more than farmers who were holding spears and shields. But at least they came. But have you noticed who has been absent from these fights? And who hasn't come? The Mercians. Where is King Burgred? He's King Athelred and Prince Alfred's brother-in-law. When he called for support at Snottingham, Wessex answered. So where the hell is Burgred and the men of Mercia? We aren't told. The record is conspicuously silent on what was going on. But you can imagine that King Athelred and Prince Alfred were wondering the exact same thing, and probably had a few less than charitable things to say about Burgred's honor. 
I mean, here they were with a royal ton under the control of the heathens, with their army battered and bloodied, and with a great number of the men of Wessex, including their greatest general, lying dead in the fields. And their ally was nowhere to be seen. Mercia, despite the family connection, and despite the loyalty that Wessex had shown them in years prior, remained behind her walls. Wessex would have to look to itself and find a savior within its own ranks. No one was coming to their aid. But the shame of their earlier defeat, and quite possibly the outrage at the lack of support from their neighbors to the north, resulted in a surge of morale. The West Saxon army, which had been broken only days earlier, once again swelled in ranks, as King Athelred and Prince Alfred decided how to best engage the Danes and remove them from their lands. Every day that passed, order returned. War bands reformed. The Ferd reconstituted itself. I wonder if the warriors began to feel a sense of hope as they saw their army come back together. Or perhaps, like the ancient Anglo-Saxon poems of old, they were simply motivated by grim determination and outrage. The propaganda that we've spent months talking about, the othering of the Northmen, the myths and rumors that they've heard about these pagans, all of that would have primed the West Saxons for violence and vengeance. From our vantage point, it's easy to see these fights as one between the ruling classes. We understand that really all that changed for the lower classes in the long run was who they paid their food rent to. And it does seem that some of the peasants saw it that way as well, based upon how much of a problem defection appears to have been. But Wessex had been waging a war for hearts and minds. And those closest to Alfred, who very well might have been the chief architect of that propaganda war, might have viewed things very differently. Given the time and the religious way that the scribes under his influence discussed the issue, it's unlikely that the army of Wessex saw this as a political event. This was a religious war. This was apocalyptic. The heathens had already killed their friends and family members. And should they lose, there was no telling what kind of horrors awaited the friends and family that were still alive. So both the warriors and the farmers returned to King Athelred and Prince Alfred's army. After a couple days, the order went out. The army was to march west, right back towards Reading. There are many theories as to where precisely they were headed and where the exact location of the battlefield was. One theory that I like is that on Ickneald Way, just west of Streetly, there's a place called King's Standing Hill. And it's within marching distance of Reading. It's also well situated along known waterways and roads throughout the region, and it's in an area where the two forces likely would have converged. It's also fairly attractive from a military point of view. A large field, a hill, all the sorts of things that you'd want in a battle for this era. And for those reasons, many scholars do favor King's Standing Hill as the place where Alfred and Athelred met Halfdan and Bagsek. But wherever it was... At the time, it was called Ashdown, and the Danish army arrived there first. 
the West Saxons weren't far behind. And King Athelred and Prince Alfred sent scouts out to determine what they were facing. Shortly thereafter, the brothers learned that the Danes had arranged their army along a ridge and split their forces into two large contingents. One half of their force was under the direct control of Kings Halfdan and Bagsek, and the other half was commanded by the many Jarls under their control. Alfred and Athelred would have understood that splitting their forces like this was a sound tactical decision because it gave them better flexibility in the field and would allow the forces to work in concert to fight the West Saxons from multiple fronts. With proper maneuvering, the two Danish forces might even manage to envelop the army of Wessex. Even worse news, the Danish position on the ridge was clever, as it gave them an advantage for ranged weapons, and even for shield wall engagements. As we talked about last week, a battle between two shield walls was largely a shoving match punctuated by the occasional stabbing. And if you're on the high ground, you can really drop your weight onto the enemy's shield wall, making gravity work for you. The power you dump into the shield wall would be amplified, and you also wouldn't have to expend as much energy, as you could rely on your body weight to supplement your advance. Your enemy, on the other hand, would have to do extra work just to move forward. And chances are, your opponents will tire quicker as a result. Consequently, Alfred and Athelred's counterattack was at a disadvantage already, and they hadn't even arrived at the battlefield yet. They were still marching. As they approached Ashdown, King Athelred and Prince Alfred discussed how to handle the threat posed by the Danes. They couldn't do much about the fact that the Danes had seized the ridge, but they could at least take measures to avoid the very real threat of being enveloped or outflanked by two independent detachments of Danes. And the way they handled that was splitting their forces in two, just like the Danes. King Athelred would take one detachment and square off with the forces commanded by Kings Halfdan and Bagsek. And Prince Alfred would take the other and face the Danes under the command of the Jarls. As for their positions on the field and what happened in the battle, well, they would have to leave that in God's hands. With the plan in place, the army of Wessex approached Ashdown on January 8th, 871. Alfred's forces arrived first, and what they saw on that ridge was intimidating. But... Not as much as they might have expected. The great heathen army was vast. But, despite the disaster at Reading, the full army of Wessex was still slightly more numerous. And there might have been a temptation to take comfort in that. However, Reading was only four days earlier, and the Saxon forces had learned how sly these Danes could be in battle. So I wonder if Prince Alfred was scanning the horizon, looking for ridges, woods, or hills where further detachment of Danes might be hiding in ambush. I think I would be. But whatever Prince Alfred was doing, it seems that King Athelred had his own plan in mind. With his forces split, the king halted his detachment before he even reached the field, and he ordered that his priest hold a mass. And with that the king entered his tent to pray. 
God, in his goodness and justice, so much offended by our sins, had thus worn down the lands and kingdoms of the Christians, said Prudentius of Troyes. These heathens were brought here by God as a judgment against the sins of Wessex. Athelred, as king, was duty-bound to appease God and bring his people back within the light. And so he prayed. The sources don't say whether he ordered his army to join him in his prayer, but I would be very surprised if he didn't. After all, in the Carolingian model of rule, the king isn't a lamb who takes on the sins of his people. He's more of a shepherd who's responsible for bringing them all to grace. And given the top-down nature of Anglo-Saxon society, I find it very hard to believe that the king would pray alone. Naturally, they couldn't all fit into his tent, so if they were ordered to pray, they would have to do it outside. But I bet they did. Now the land of this region is hilly, so we don't know whether the Danes could see this or not. But it would have been quite a sight. Based upon the reports that come out after the fact, it seems that Alfred might have had a view of this sudden halt and subsequent prayer. But we don't know exactly how he reacted to this development either, or specifically what he was thinking at this moment. But if King Athelred was focused upon his duty to appease God, I can't help but suspect that Prince Alfred, who was quite well versed in ecclesiastical thought, was also thinking about his duty to God as described in James 2.14. Quote, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? End quote. Judging on the accounts of Alfred as well as his own writings, he strikes me as a man who possessed a strong sense of faith. But he also possessed a keen, pragmatic mind that had no patience for faith without deeds. We see it in how he handled virtually every aspect of his life. Alfred wasn't staring into the great beyond and waiting for his ultimate reward. Alfred was here to get shit done, even if that meant ignoring Exodus 20.13. And something I can't help but wonder is whether or not Alfred's illness played a role in his perspective here. For most of his adult life, he's been plagued by an intensely painful disease that would come and go without warning, and no one could explain why it was happening or how to stop it. Speaking as someone who has one of these immuno diseases, I can tell you that it can be so bad it feels like you're dying. And they do have the potential to kill you if a flare gets bad enough. And that's with the benefit of modern medicine, and also an understanding of what's happening to you. And Alfred lacked both of those. And really, it's the lack of an explanation that I bet was the worst part. I wasn't diagnosed for four years, and it's impossible to describe the despair that comes from having an illness that doctors can't identify. Every failed test, every failed treatment takes a little more of your sense of hope. It sucks. And for Alfred, there was no light at the end of the tunnel. No moment where a doctor said, we know what this is. Instead, he just had a string of disappointments and confusion, punctuated by moments where his body would try and tear itself apart while he just lay there, wondering whether once again he would recover from this, 
or if this would just be it. So, my guess is that Alfred had already contemplated and come to terms with his death long before he ever set foot on that battlefield. In his biography, I see an acceptance of mortality and an impatience with wasted time. And I get it. I imagine that he was looking to make his mark, and he didn't know how long he had to do it. So, as he approached Ashdown, did Alfred pray? Did he enter a tent with a trusted priest like his brother did? Did he kneel with his men and seek deliverance? I don't know. Asser and the Chronicle remain silent on the fact, but the portrait that Asser paints is one of a pragmatic and energetic leader. One who has faith, yes, but who is focused upon works. And in the lead-up to this battle, he tells us of a man who was spurred on by the shame of his defeat at Reading just days earlier, who was wise enough to see that his dynasty was on the verge of extinction, and who probably knew enough about warfare to know that morale was the name of the game. And the longer that his men stood there staring at the Danish line, the longer that they had to contemplate the horrors that awaited them in the battle ahead the weaker his shield wall would become. Alfred came from a long line of victorious kings who had killed pagans just like these ones. His men knew it. And I have no doubt that stories of the victories of the House of Wessex circulated widely around the campfires at night. God was on their side. And they were being led by two men who had the blood of heroes flowing through their veins. And what did the Danes have? false gods and trickery? The West Saxons had the one true god, the descendants of mighty Churdich. And besides, the great heathen army didn't even look so great now that they saw it lined up on Ash's Hill. It was kind of small. This was their land. And if the Danes had come here looking for a fight, they were going to get one. They had a plan. And it was time. Alfred ordered the charge. Probably around four to 500 West Saxon soldiers began a quick assault at the hill. The plan was clear. Alfred and his men would charge the force led by the five Jarls, while Athelred would take on the force led by Kings Halfdan and Bagsack. At the end of this short sprint up the hill, the real work would begin. But, wait, where was Athelred? Alfred and his men were following the plan. Where the hell was Athelred? Where was half of the damn army? Asser doesn't give us details on what Alfred did moment by moment, but you have to imagine that in the middle of his charge, Alfred suddenly realized that his entire flank had gone missing. Oh God, was his brother still praying? Too late to worry about that now. They were already mostly across the field. If they fell back now, this could turn out to be an even worse disaster than Redding. The Danes were already maneuvering after all. If he retreated, any advantage gained by the charge would be lost. His men's morale would break and the battle would be over before it even began. All Alfred could do is fight and hope his brother hurried the hell up. But Athelred's forces still remained behind and the king was still in his tent. Did he even know what was happening? He must have known, right? 
Shortly, someone came in and said, Uh, sir, the battle has already started. But as mass continued, about a thousand West Saxon feet were pounding across the soggy field in open formation. And then they got into missile range. Asser tells us that Alfred responded to this like a wild boar, utterly fearless. Alfred's men probably put their shields up to block any arrows and spears that the Danes might launch. And then they ran a few more yards up the hill and hurled their own spears into the Danish lines. And Athelred's forces just stood around. Maybe they thought about God and, I don't know, God stuff. But that was about it. And there was little that Alfred could do about it. I mean, I suppose he could scream for support, but it's unlikely that they would follow his orders, even if they could hear him. He and his men were alone out there, and the king continued his mass. But f*** it, there was work to do. Sure, he and his men were fighting the entire Danish force on their own. Sure, they were outnumbered two to one. But now wasn't the time to think about that. Now was the time to fight. And Alfred gave the order. His army formed their shield wall. It was time to go to work. At the top of the hill was a single thorn tree and the battle raged all around it. He was terribly outnumbered and this was an advantage that the Danes simply could not ignore. They could end it here. The Danish forces converged upon Alfred and his men now Alfred's shield walls remained strong. His men had faith in themselves and in their leader. But if the Danes could get behind those walls, if they could envelop his forces, then half of the West Saxon army could be destroyed in an instant. But the thing about battle is that it's noisy, chaotic, and you don't have a lot of time to look around. And King Athelred had finished his prayers. His men had emerged and were now running headlong up the hill. In their impatience, the Danes had left themselves open to exactly this sort of counterattack. And it's quite possible that they didn't even realize that there was a secondary force nearby. They were caught completely by surprise when about 500 fresh West Saxons slammed into their flank. This was revenge for Redding. The disorder caused by a surprise flanking attack is like a wrecking ball on a shield wall. Shield walls rely on organization and teamwork. If holes open up, or if warriors fail to work in concert, any advantage they hold is lost. And by being caught unawares by this secondary force, many of the Danes undoubtedly were left unsure of which way they should orient their shields. And that left the shield wall dangerously weak. And in the chaos of that moment, the Danish shield wall broke, and the West Saxons began hacking and impaling their way through the enemy forces. Bodies were dropping all around them, and not just warriors, but their Jarls were dying. Jarl Sidrock the Old, Jarl Sidrock the Younger, Jarl Osborne, Jarl Frana, and Jarl Harold. Five of them in total fell. And then, mighty King Bagseg fell to the West Saxon shield wall as well and the Danish morale fully broke. The remains of the great heathen army ran screaming from the field. But this time, there would be no mercy. There would be no tactical retreat. The men of Wessex pursued the fleeing forces. 
All through the night and into the next day, the Danes ran, with the West Saxons seeking their blood and cutting down anyone they caught. The chase continued all the way until the Danes reached the walls of Reading. And standing there, panting, exhausted from the long run, and staring at the walls of Reading, I wonder what Alfred and Athelred felt. A lot of men under Alfred's command no doubt took the brunt of the casualties, as they had been left exposed waiting for Athelred's charge. And perhaps that was the plan all along. Perhaps Asser gives us the prayer story in an effort to downplay Athelred's role in the victory. And this was actually their strategy from the outset. But whatever the case, it had proven to be a risky and costly plan. A lot of men lay dead or dying at Ashdown. And that left Wessex in a far weaker position than it had been in before. Thankfully, though, the Danes had also taken substantial losses. Wessex had revenged the loss of Elderman Athelwolf upon the Northmen sixfold. Behind King Athelred and Prince Alfred lay the bodies of five Jarls, one king, and countless warriors. Ashdown, despite the cost, was an impressive accomplishment for the men of Wessex. They had tasted victory. They now knew that they could defeat these heathens. They knew that God was on their side. And more importantly, they knew that the line of Egbert was strong. Sickly young Alfred had turned out to be a ferocious and fearless leader. Morale was surging. And that was good, because the dead of winter was approaching. Hunger would eventually force the Danes to leave their walls. And now Halfdan and his men had their own grief and shame to avenge. Another clash was inevitable. Necessity and pride demanded it. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Twitter. Just go to at BritishPodcast. And you can find links to all our other communities by looking at the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Yeah.